Hi, my name's Alistair. I am the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside. We are really glad you've joined us for our service today. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I want to address the public health announcement that was issued this week, extending uh, the bans until February 5th. Obviously, this means there'll be no in-person gatherings, whether it's on Sundays or community groups, and that we'll continue to meet virtually. But I also want to acknowledge that perhaps you're feeling overwhelmed as these bans are extended yet again, and you're feeling like you can't do it, that it's too much, you're, you're really struggling through this. And I, I want to name that and give you permission to name that, that if this is starting to wear on you and it feels like more than you can bear, it's okay to name that. Uh, you're, you're not alone. Uh, we're all going through this together, but more importantly, uh, the Lord is an ever-present help in our time of need. This is what the psalmists teach us to pray. And so our prayer, our sincere prayer for you is that you would be encountering the presence of God, that you'd be connecting to those you love through the ways that you can. And if you do need help, if you do need support, I want to remind you we're here for you. If you reach out and schedule a meeting with any of our pastors, we will make time to connect with you, to hear how you're doing, and to pray for you and to provide support as possible. Please know it's our desire to continue to collaborate with our health authorities, uh, to be creative in the ways we connect through this time and to pursue love, to continue to support and love our neighbors uh, by following and walking in the ways of Jesus. Uh, so before we dig into the sermon, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks uh, that you are with us, that you are the God who is near, and that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you would apply it to our feet, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, today is the first Sunday after Epiphany. Epiphany takes place every year on January 6th. It is the first day after the 12 days of Christmas. Now, if you're wondering, epiphany means appearing or revelation. Uh, Advent is a season where we prepare ourselves for the return of Christ by meditating upon his first appearing as an infant. And epiphany is a time, a season, where we try to discern what does this appearing mean for the world. It's a time where we look at Christ in his humanity and discover God gazing back at us in his eyes. And so as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke, our passage that was read today, Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 22 through 40, is a great way for us to enter into the season of Epiphany. So I want to try to step into this passage together and imagine it and try to live what was going on in this moment. Uh, Forty days have since passed since Jesus was born was born. And so now it's time to head to Jerusalem. So Joseph and Mary and their newborn uh, embark on this roughly 10 mile trek from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, when you imagine the temple, uh, we shouldn't imagine something small and calm uh, and a serene environment with people quietly praying and contemplating the mysteries of God. The temple was a holy space to be sure. But it was more like walking into a busy mall than a quiet and quaint cathedral. 
Uh, the temple, it was actually very large and it was composed of many courtyards. And in the outer courts, it was full of life and noises, such as people bartering with vendors over the cost of a sacrificial animal and people who had infirmities and diseases crying out for healing and then just general conversations happening all over the place. And Mary and Joseph, they're heading to the temple. They've arrived at the temple to make good on the well-known traditions of their people. Mary needs to become ceremonially clean after giving birth, and Joseph and Mary need to dedicate Christ to God uh, for being their firstborn child. And Luke, he wants us to see that although the circumstances around Jesus from the outside looking in appear quite scandalous, a child out of wedlock, even though we know it's not the case, even though that's how it appears to people, Joseph and Mary are actually faithfully fulfilling the Torah as they're able. And so they've come to the temple to make their humble offering to God. Joseph and Mary, they purchase a pair of doves or two young pigeons. This was the offering designated for the poor. And it's a little reminder that Jesus didn't grow up among the privileged and the rich, but among the humble and the poor. And with their sacrifice in hand, Joseph and Mary made their way across the noisy court of the Gentiles towards the eastern gate of the inner wall. And around there, there would be hundreds of people praying. And as they're taking it all in, the sights and the smells and the sounds, the whole experience of being in the temple, across in the the distance in the crowd is an old man and he's locked eyes with them and he's walking straight toward them. And when he's in front of them, he has the audacity to say, can I see your child? Is it him? Can I hold him? Now, uh, pregnant women and newborn mothers know this for certain, that babies attract unwanted attention. Uh, during both of Julia's pregnancies, I like to think that I became somewhat of an expert at blocking unsolicited belly touching from strangers and friends alike. And I, I think there's probably something evolutionary driving humans to just disregard all boundaries and respect of another person's body to touch baby bumps. But nevertheless, I found uh, ways to stop other people's gravitational pull towards Julia's stomach, and I know she appreciated it. And one time when Julia and I were uh, grocery shopping while she was pregnant with Ansley, I saw a woman start beelining it toward us, and I could see it in our eyes. She wanted to encounter the pregnant one. But when she arrived, she actually didn't tuck uh, touched Julia's stomach. She was actually quite civilized and just said, I saw you're pregnant. I wanted to congratulate you. And we had a very normal and lovely conversation. And then we had to go to the till and check out. And so we said bye. She said, hold on. I just want to say something. And she spoke this quasi blessing over us. She said, your child will be a psychic. Your child will be a psychic. And then poof, she disappeared. That was that. Now, seven and a half years later, I can attest that Ansley is no psychic. Just yesterday, beside herself, sitting on the floor, crying, she says, 
I can't find my toy, Daddy. Where is my toy? It was literally directly beside her. She is no psychic. This grocery store prophet had it all wrong. Babies have a way of drawing unwarranted attention, but what happens in our passage is no chance encounter. And it's not unwarranted attention. In fact, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit had been orchestrating this whole moment. He is bringing Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna together for this precise encounter. And Simeon, he's no grocery store prophet. Everything he will declare about Jesus will come to pass. And so as old man Simeon speaks with Mary and Joseph, I suspect time slowed down a little bit. I feel like they knew that he knew about who this child really is. And Simeon, he can't hold back. He's been waiting his whole life to see the Messiah with his own eyes. In fact, Luke tells us that God had even said to him that he would see the Messiah before he died. And so he's been faithfully waiting upon God for the promise. And now it's finally happening. He's beholding this with his own eyes. So what else can he do but praise God? And so he praises God and he says in verses 29 through 32, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. To be fair, Mary is getting used to grand things being said about her son. You know, this has happened more than once while Jesus was in utero. But we're told in verse 33 that both Mary and Joseph marvel over what was said about Jesus. Because even though they've heard similar things said, even though Mary herself has said similar things, this kind of news doesn't get old. Jesus is God's salvation. We're still talking about it. Jesus is salvation, not just for Israel, but the whole world. This news doesn't get old. And yet this time is different. Because Simeon goes on to speak directly to Mary and he says to her in verses 34 through 35, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken again so that the thoughts of many will be revealed. I feel like he paused before he said this. Maybe he was even a little reluctant to say this, but he has to say it. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. A sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. The most wonderful, the most gracious event in human history is God sending his son into the world through Mary. And this same wonderful and gracious event will cause indescribable grief for Mary. And before Mary can even process what she's just heard, before she can even make sense of it, the old prophetess Anna joins the scene to celebrate with Simeon. And we read in Luke 38, coming up to them at that very moment, 
Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. It's easy, you know, to empathize with how Simeon and Anna are overcome with joy in this moment. Now, they share a common lifelong desire. In verse 25, we read that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And in verse 38, that Anna longed for the redemption of Jerusalem. They longed for God to comfort his people in their loss, to be near them in their grief, to console them within the oppression they've experienced under Roman power and rule. But they also long for God to redeem them from the world as it is, to liberate and free them from this foreign ruler. And in this desire for redemption, they long to see God make good on his promises to make Israel a light that shines his salvation for all the nations to see. We can relate, I think, to these sort of desires, these sort of longings. Who among us doesn't want to see the nations healed or our world made whole? Who among us doesn't want to be comforted, deeply comforted by God in the despair we can feel over the way things are and the tragedies that occur. Who doesn't long for consolation during the coronavirus pandemic? For God to act in the midst of the opioid endemic. Or to see God show up on what took place on Epiphany in the United States. Who doesn't long for that sort of consolation and redemption? But Simeon and Anna knew something important about these kind of longings, these kind of stirrings, these, these kinds of desires. They're actually a desire for the Messiah, for salvation, for this infant they're seeing with their own eyes. So of course they're excited. Of course they're overcome with joy. Of course Anna starts to tell anyone and everyone who is longing for the, the redemption of Jerusalem. She's proclaiming it right away. Because all of their faithful waiting has not been in vain. And there's a point to be made here. A life spent waiting on the promises of God is not a life wasted. Even if you only see the promise fulfilled at the very end of your life, or even if you only seen it, see it fulfilled in the life to come, a life spent waiting on the promises of God is never a life wasted because God makes good on his promise. But I can't help but think that part of Mary recoiled in herself. I can't help that maybe she wanted Anna to stay quiet because I can't help think that despite all of the beautiful and amazing things that she's just heard Simeon say, she can only really hear the one thing she wish he didn't say. A sword will pierce your own soul too. We need to remember, Mary is not some incidental detail to the Incarnation. She's called the mother of God for good reason. Her child is God in the flesh. But we cannot overlook that it's her DNA in the body of Jesus. 
We must not forget that God in the vulnerable form of a baby was once attached to her by an umbilical cord, that he came into the world through her and was nursed at her breasts. We can't forget that although Jesus is fully God, he is also fully human and that his sustenance in his early life depended entirely upon Mary and that he was nourished and nurtured by her love, that her body shares in his incarnation. And the mother of God is told a sword will pierce your own soul. Did Mary flinch? Was there a lump in her throat? Did, did her heart sink? I think so. Even though she can't know what this means yet, how could she not feel a sense of sorrow despite all the beautiful things that were just said about him? What's this all about? Why does Simeon add this part? Well, twice Simeon has told Mary, that Jesus would be a revelation. And this is what Epiphany is all about, understanding how Christ is a revelation to the world. And Simeon said, Jesus is God's salvation, not just for Israel, but for all nations. As Simeon says, Jesus is a light of revelation for the Gentiles. And now this is the first time in Luke's gospel that the Gentiles have been explicitly named. And so the salvation that Jesus brings to the world in the gospel of Luke, it just keeps growing and getting bigger and expanding. It's not just for some, it's not just for Israel, it's for the whole world. It's even for those that Israelites thought were the furthest away from God. But Simeon also says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So hearts will one day be revealed by this child. And it must have been incredibly difficult for Mary to hear that some will fall and speak against him, culminating in a sword piercing her very soul. Three times, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke points out that Jesus knew the thoughts of people's hearts. So the first time is when Pharisees think that Jesus has blasphemed for proclaiming a man's sins forgiven. And the second time is when the Pharisees are looking for ways to accuse Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And the third time is when people believe that Jesus is actually casting out demons through his own demonic power. And each time, Luke writes, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew the thoughts going on in their hearts. And in each case, their thoughts were against Jesus. They call him a blasphemer, a Sabbath breaker, or even demonic. And they were repulsed by him. And this is what Simeon prophesied. Jesus would know the hearts of people and reveal it. And often hearts are found to be against him. Now, we might not call Jesus a blasphemer. We might not be all that concerned that he pushed against the norms of Sabbath keeping in his day. And we might be a long way from saying that his power had demonic origins. But that doesn't mean our hearts are any less set against him. When I was a teenager, I uh, dated a girl who uh, went to a Catholic school. 
And although she didn't come from a religious family and didn't profess any faith herself, uh, she started to become intrigued by what she was learning about God in her religion class. And at the time, I considered myself spiritual, but not religious. You know, I was intrigued by mystical things. I was meeting with shamans. I was enamored with the New Age movement and the Bhagavad Gita. And anytime she talked about Jesus, I felt this strong resistance well up against it. Now, I'd never actually read the Bible or anything about Christianity for that matter. But nevertheless, I was against what she was learning and sharing with me. I was even repulsed by it. And so I would make little jabs at her and little digs at her, which is a great approach to dating if you want some dating advice. And I enjoyed challenging her budding faith. And and I made fun of the ideas she shared. And my favorite thing to do was to point out bad news in the world and say, where is your God? even though I had no answer for where this mystical life force of the universe was either. You see, I was uninformed, but nevertheless against Jesus. But the mention of his name exposed my heart. Jesus reveals ancient and present hearts alike. You know, we might be against Jesus due to the uninformed opinions we have about Christianity. You know, a general repulsion Uh, that we develop to the caricature of Christianity in the media or misrepresentations of Jesus by wayward and misguided people. Perhaps, though, your resistance to to faith is, is more subtle than my past opposition or the accusations we see in these passages in Scripture. Uh, Ross Lockhart is a local pastor, professor, and, and author, and he describes... Vancouver culture as affable agnostics who are amiable, if not apathetic, to faith. Affable agnostics who are amiable, if not apathetic, to faith. Does this quartet of alliteration better describe you? You Affable, friendly, and agnostic, who knows, or amiable, sure, or apathetic, eh? Even so. It doesn't mean you're not against Jesus in some way. Perhaps you quietly scoff at his claims to divinity. Or perhaps you're highly suspicious of his miraculous birth or all the miracles altogether. Or maybe his exclusive claims to being the way, the truth, and the life, they make you uncomfortable because how could we know that? See, being against Jesus doesn't have to mean you're vocal or antagonistic. It doesn't mean you're out looking for a fight. You could be quiet and composed, courteous, and nevertheless against Jesus. But I think the most common way we resist Jesus, even those of us who put our faith in him, is we resist him as Savior. Our hearts, they are inclined to reject that our sin is so serious that it required a cross, let alone a Savior. Because if we accept a savior, then we have to renounce what Ross Lockhart calls the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Because confession of sin and faith in a savior, it decenters us. And our hearts don't like that because we like to remain at the center of our own little worlds. See, Jesus, he reveals hearts and he still reveals hearts. And he unveils the many ways we resist and oppose him. And this is what 
was prophesied by Simeon to Mary. And every little and major accusation against Jesus during his life accumulated in shouts, crucify him. And while Jesus was hung upon the cross, the Gospel of John tells us that a soldier came and pierced his side with a spear. And I imagine in that moment, a sword went straight through the soul of Mary. This is the sorrowful beauty of God's salvation. This is the sorrowful beauty of God's salvation. Simeon and Anna have longed for consolation and redemption. And we can relate to this longing. We, we get it. But this consolation and redemption came through the rejection of Jesus, the crucifixion of the Messiah, the desolation of God's beloved son, the death of Mary's boy. Now, it seems to me that there are two very different feelings in our passage that we must hold together. Simeon and Anna, they're full of joy and hope. You know, they've been waiting for God to console and redeem. They've spent their lives faithfully following the ways of God, praying and worship day and night, believing God will make good on his promise. And now God's salvation has arrived. The Messiah is finally here. And from our vantage point, we know God has indeed consoled and redeemed the entire world through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so like Simeon and Anna, when we think about the Messiah, when we think about Jesus, when we think about who he is and all he's achieved, yes, there should be joy and hope. And for now, like them, we faithfully wait for Jesus to return and make things right, to make things new, to make things whole. And we know that a life spent waiting on the promises of God is not a life wasted. But as we wait, it doesn't mean we're passive. It doesn't mean we just give up and do nothing. Like Simeon and Anna, we devote ourselves to the ways of Jesus. We depend upon the Holy Spirit to transform our lives through worship and prayer. We seek God's kingdom here and now, knowing it won't be here entirely, but that it is coming and it is coming soon. And like Anna, we proclaim this good news to anyone who wants to listen. But then there's Simeon's weighty words to Mary. What do we do with these words? It is just as much a message to us as it was to Mary. Jesus is the consolation and redemption of the whole world. And when we encounter him, he reveals hearts. So what does he reveal in your heart, in your heart of hearts? Do you long for him or do you resist him? Does he lift you up or cause you to fall? Are you enamored with him or repulsed by him? And like Mary, has your heart been pierced by his heart being pierced for you? Because this is where we find our consolation and redemption the sorrowful beauty of Christ our Lord.